Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show one of our favorite things to talk about is the rule of law in our lives. And it's an easy thing to take for granted, folks. And today's story is from Brian House. Brian is an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, which is generally considered to be a progressive organization. And so many folks were confused when they defended the constitutional rights of an organization that isn't one. Here's Brian. So this case is National Rifle Association versus Cuomo. 
it's a retaliation case. And so, you know, the basic legal argument is that the New York state government was retaliating against the NRA because of the NRA's protected expression and viewpoint, and in particular, the NRA's gun promotion advocacy. The specifics of the case are that the uh, New York Department of Financial Services issued a regulatory guidance to all the entities that are regulated by the Department of Financial Services. And those are you know, primarily banks, insurance companies, stuff like that. And the guidance stated something like, you should be cautious about the risks, including the reputational risks of associating with the NRA or other gun promotion groups. And shortly after that guidance was issued, the Department of Financial Services actually entered into two consent agreements, which are kind of like legal agreements not to continue a prosecution as long as certain conditions are met, with two, I believe they were insurance providers that provided certain affinity insurance programs in connection with the NRA. And those consent agreements basically said, you're not going to do any more business with the NRA, period, and they levied a bunch of fines and stuff like that. And so a number of other insurance providers, you know, the NRA alleged at least, a number of other insurance providers, seeing this guidance and seeing the consent orders that were entered against these insurance companies basically got the message that any sort of association with the NRA, you would get the full force of the New York financial regulatory apparatus coming down on you. And the NRA alleged that they basically couldn't get insurance programs and their access to banking services was being jeopardized because all the financial entities in New York state, which is to say most of the financial entities in the country, were getting this message from the state government that any sort of interaction with the NRA was prohibited, whether it was legal or not. So the NRA was basically saying that the New York state government was putting this message out into the water that associating with gun promotion groups, and I think the, the guidance that the Department of Financial Services issued here was particularly telling because it didn't say, you know, associating with the NRA and providing illegal insurance agreements, of course, is prohibited. And if you shouldn't engage in these kinds of actions that were subject to the regulatory authority of the Department of Financial Services, they were just saying, if you associate with gun promotion groups, we're going to take a very close look at your businesses. And there's really no reason why the financial services regulator should care about what the advocacy is that insurance providers are, are cooperating with. But when we were filing the amicus brief, there was nothing that really connected that guidance to any law that the Department of Financial Services was directly implementing, right? And the guidance itself just sort of says, you know, be careful about the risks, including the reputational risks of associating with these entities. But it's totally unclear to me what reputational risks have to do with the Department of Financial Services. It, it really just sounds like they're saying, we really don't like this group and we want you to know that. And we want you to know that in the context of our enforcement decisions. It's one thing for Governor Cuomo to come out there and say, I hate the NRA. It's acknowledged that public you know, politicians identify groups that they don't like and they condemn them. And you know, that's generally considered acceptable, although sometimes it can be morally totally abhorrent. But when the context of that statement strongly suggests that the politician or the regulator, or the government official will use their enforcement discretion to punish the person they condemn or anybody who associates with the person they condemn, that's when there are First Amendment retaliation concerns. And of course, you know, it's no secret that Governor Cuomo hates the NRA and, you know, has gone on Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms and said, you know, basically, we're going to try to bankrupt the NRA. And so, you know, we said that at least on the facts as alleged by the NRA in their complaint, 
they raised a serious concern about whether or not the New York state government was trying to retaliate against them because of their expressive advocacy. And so they said, look, there's at least a question here about whether or not New York's trying to inappropriately leverage its regulatory authority to stamp out viewpoints that it doesn't like, in particular gun promotion advocacy. Now, I should say here that, you know, the ACLU disagrees very strongly with the NRA, and I disagree very strongly with the NRA over its, you know, gun promotion advocacy. I, I think it's abhorrent. But it is constitutionally protected expression, just like the ACLU's expression is constitutionally protected, just like expression by socialists or communists is constitutionally protected, or advocacy by Planned Parenthood is constitutionally protected. And if the New York state government is claiming the power to basically shut down advocacy organizations by choking off their ability to associate with essential banking and insurance companies, then there's nothing to prevent, you know, the governor of Alabama from making it impossible for the ACLU of Alabama to operate. You know, what we like to say at the ACLU is, is First Amendment rights are indivisible. And if you take First Amendment rights away from your enemy today, they're going to be, that's going to be used as a justification to take those same rights away from you tomorrow. And so what you want are, are good rules that protect the rights of everybody. And that, you know, when people have constitutional rights that we don't parcel out constitutional rights just to the people we like or just to our friends, everybody deserves the protection of the Constitution. And the Constitution has to be enforced without specific regard to, you know, ideology or politics. Constitutional rights are sacrosanct. And so, you know, that's why at the ACLU, for 100 years, we've been sticking up for the First Amendment rights of people with whom we profoundly disagree, people we condemn. Because we recognize that at the end of the day, the Constitution is meant to protect all of us. And so we felt it was very important to say that, you know, if the evidence bears out that this is what the New York State government was doing, that that would be a First Amendment violation. And so we said the court had to at least let that go into discovery for the NRA to investigate whether or not that was in fact what the New York State government was doing. And you've been listening to Brian House of the ACLU. And what I loved about the ACLU is it, in the end, is defending all of our rights to express ourselves and organize as we see fit. The story of the NRA versus Cuomo here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue here with Our American Stories. And now Matt Parker, a comedian and mathematician from Australia, tells the story of the time Michael Larson surprisingly beat the game show Press Your Luck. Here's Matt. The best TV game shows sit at the intersection of skill and luck. And in the 1980s, there was one such game show called Press Your Luck. The skill component came from asking the contestants trivia questions. But then the luck came in via the big board. 
This is how prizes were dished out after a contestant had demonstrated their skill answering a trivia question. It was a massive screen with 18 boxes detailing different cash amounts or physical prizes and a cartoon character known as a whammy. The highlight on the board would rapidly flip between the different boxes in an apparently random order. The players would then win the content of whichever box was selected when they hit their buzzer, but if they landed on a whammy, the player would lose all the prizes they had accumulated so far. Stop. never linger on one box long enough for the player to see what it was, react, and then hit their buzzer. And because the movement was unpredictable, it was theoretically impossible for the player to anticipate which box was going to be selected. So they were picking at random. And most players would win a few prizes before retiring for that round. Other players, of course, would press their luck and get whammied. I mean, that was the idea in theory. Michael Larson was an ice cream truck driver from Ohio and they decided to see just how random the big board really was. So they taped some shows when it first started airing in 1983 and they poured over the footage trying to crack if there were any underlying patterns. And sure enough, they noticed that the board only had five predetermined cycles. They just went through them so fast that they looked random. So Michael set about memorizing those five cycles, working out exactly when the optimum point to buzz in for each one would be, and then they flew out to Los Angeles and unbelievably managed to get themselves on the show as a contestant. The game starts normally enough. Michael was competing against Ed, a Baptist minister, and Janie, a dental assistant. Michael answers enough trivia questions correctly to earn some spins on the big board, and on his first go, he hits a whammy. By the start of the second round, Michael is in last place, but his trivia knowledge has just earned him seven more spins on the big board. This time, he does not hit a whammy. Oh no, he lands on $1,250. Okay, no whammies, no whammies. Come on, big bucks. I need lots of money. Come on. Yo. Stop. Stop at $1,250. One spin left. And then on the next spin, $1,250 again. Stop! Stop! At $1,250 And then $4,000, $5,000, $1,000, a holiday, $4,000, and so on. As most of the prizes also come with a free spin, his reign on the big board seems to be everlasting. At first, the host, Peter Tamarkin, goes through his normal patter, waiting for Michael to hit a whammy. But Michael doesn't. In a freak of probability, Michael keeps selecting prize after prize. 
It is amazing to watch the range of emotions the host goes through. Initially, he's excited. Something unlikely is happening. But soon, he's trying to work out what on earth is going on while still maintaining his jovial game show host persona. Apparently, behind the scenes, chaos was breaking out as show executives and channel directors were trying to work out, was Michael cheating? How how was this happening? To their eyes, Michael seemed to be celebrating too soon. He was pleased when he buzzed in in less time than he conceivably could have been reading the prize that he had won. Somehow, he already knew when to press the buzzer and which square he wanted to stop on. Now, of course, all of this could have been avoided if the game show Big Board was actually random. Then Michael wouldn't have been able to pour over the footage on VHS and memorize the five different cycles. But the designers of the Pressure Luck system had hard-coded set cycles instead of making it truly random, because being random is very difficult. There's not even really a case of it being difficult for computers to do something randomly. It's pretty much impossible. No computer can be random, unaided. Computers are built to follow instructions precisely. Processors are built to predictably do the correct thing every time. Making a computer do something unexpected is a very difficult feat. You can't have a line of programming code that says do something truly random without also having a specialized component attached to the computer to provide the randomness. The extreme version of this is to build a two-meter-high motorized conveyor belt that dips into a bucket of about 200 dice and lifts a random selection of them up past a camera. The computer can then use that camera to look at the dice, detect what numbers have been rolled, and use that as a source of randomness. And such a machine, capable of over 1.3 random dice rolls a day, would weigh over 100 pounds, fill a room with the cacophony of moving motors and rolling dice, and be exactly what Scott Nesson built for his Games by Email website. Scott, you see, runs a website where people can play games by email which means he requires about 20,000 dice rolls per day. People who play board games do take their dice rolls very seriously. So he went to all the effort in 2009 to build a machine capable of physically rolling enough dice. He was sure to engineer the dice-o-matic so it was future-proof with plenty of spare capacity, hence the maximum output of over 1.3 million rolls per day. Scott currently has about a million unused dice rolls saved on his server, and the dice-o-matic fires up for an hour or two each day to top off the randomness reservoir, filling his house in Texas with the thundering sound of hundreds of dice rolling at once. However, 
the makers of Pressure Luck did not use that. And it meant that Michael Larson was able to memorize the patterns and they ended up winning an unprecedented 110,237 dollars on the game show, about eight times more than the average winner. He had such an extended winning streak that the normally fast turnover game show had to split his appearance across two separate episodes. And even though they did look into if he was somehow cheating or breaking the rules, eventually Michael Larson did get all of his prize money. He managed to show that it was actually less effort to memorize the apparently random sequences than it was to memorize the trivia which the show was meant to be testing. Michael was able to take a game show which was supposed to be skill and luck and turn it entirely into a very specific different type of skill. And a great job by Robbie digging up that story, and it, it's just a delight. And a special thanks also to Matt Parker, a comedian and mathematician from Australia. Matt's book, Humble Pie, P.I. Pick it up at Amazon.com and the usual suspects. Michael Larson's story of how he beat the game show Press Your Luck, here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors in our lives, big ones and small ones. If we keep them bottled up, boy, that can be a real problem. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I know people who've profoundly benefited from therapy, learning everything from coping skills to setting boundaries in their life. You don't have to have experienced major trauma to benefit from therapy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's safe. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash 
OAS today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash OAS. Betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash OAS. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. And we continue with our American stories. Tommy Dew's walking tour of Charleston, South Carolina, has been praised and recommended by the likes of the Wall Street Journal to TripAdvisor. Tommy is here to share the story of Charleston from the American Revolution to today. Here's Tommy Dew. The South collapsed in 1865 and was left for dead. Charleston paid a terrible price for her role in the war. Secession began in Charleston. The first secession document was signed in downtown Charleston, December 20th, 1860. And then the first shots were fired here at Fort Sumter. So the political start to the war was in Charleston, the military start, and we were a philosophical target. The federal government bombed Charleston for 587 consecutive days. It's the second longest artillery siege in modern warfare after Leningrad. The Germans bombed the Russians for 900 days during the World War II, and the Federals bombed us for 587. And by 1865, it is a ruin. And that's, a, for instance, why Sherman didn't come here. In large part, we were not viewed as a viable target. He did not need to waste his time on us. As much as he wanted to raise Charleston, he did more harm to South Carolina and the Confederacy by burning the middle of the state. He cut a fire 60 miles wide to central South Carolina. And then we were occupied after the war for 14 years. There was a 6,000-man federal occupying force, martial law. And then when they pulled out, the place was essentially left for dead, and it took about 100 years to start to recover. Healthy cities in those 100 years embraced urban renewal. They were inclined to tear down their old stuff because it stood in the way of progress, and Charleston couldn't participate. So as a result, we've got about 100 buildings downtown from before 1776 and about 1,000 from before 1861. But I think more, maybe more importantly than the architectural preservation is the cultural preservation. People understand that the South is different, but they don't always understand why. And I would say it's because it was uninfluenced, undisturbed by the outside world. There was hardly any immigration here until relatively recently. And even accents are impacted. Southern accents tend to be much older because immigrants moved the tongue. And there was just not a lot of immigration here. And so when all these fronts were frozen in time, architecture, culture, accents, 
If we had been healthy, this would be anywhere USA. Everything would have been bulldozed. We talk about slavery a lot on my tour. You can't talk about Charleston without talking about slavery. We were the number one slave trading city for the United States. A third of slaves that entered the U.S. entered through the port of Charleston. And that's a shocking statistic, but it makes sense. Charleston was the largest city in the South until 1820. That's when New Orleans overtook us. And the slave trade had already concluded as of 1808 as part of the U.S. Constitution. So this was the largest southern harbor through legal importation. And the South, with the superior farming conditions, had an appetite for that labor. The wealth here, and, and, and that's important to understand, these are the wealthiest Americans. These are the most educated Americans. I, I liken it to what was happening really around the world. But the plantation culture that evolved here is, in my estimation, the repackaging of old world feudal culture. They're playing at being English, French, and German royals in a place where that's possible. We have a year-round growing season. We have 50 to 55 inches of annual rainfall, and we have no rocks for 100 miles. We're in an alluvial plain where nothing but topsoil and sand. And so it's some of the finest farming in the world, the Southeast Coastal Plain. And so they take that old world lens. In England, you would have large estates. You've got royals in the big house. The peasants are in the field. The peasants don't get to vote. They don't own the land. They can be bound to the estate. And then the royals would have a town in London or Paris or Vienna. So the royals of the world would gather in the capitals after fall harvest. And in the capital, you make your political relationships and then you make your business deals. And then the social fruits are in the city, in the capital as well. So literary season, debutante season, theatrical season, all that's dead of winter stuff. So they come in with a mindset and they apply it and it works. They're able to live like royals in the new world and it is seductive. And that's ultimately the issue. They're not interested in new ideas. The North was an agent of change in the mid-1800s and these families were prideful and they were not great negotiators and they would rather fight than yield they saw the federal government as unconstitutional, 500 miles away, controlled by people that lived even further away, and they were not about to lie down before it. And so they ended up fighting to the death, and by 1865, it's over, total collapse. And so the wealth here, the prestige here, is absolutely built on forced labor. You can't separate the two. But I do think it's important to understand, everybody now understands that slavery is immoral. It's not negotiable. But 200 years ago, it was kind of fuzzy. People didn't see it the way we see it. Just as an example, in 1840, only 2% of Northern people were abolitionists. Just 2% critically opposed to slavery in the North in 1840. And at the same time across the South, you know, less than 10% of white families own slaves. I see that as probably the biggest misconception. People assume that the average white guy in the South was a slave owner, and it's not close. Over 90% did not own slaves. If you look at the mountains of the South, the Appalachian counties were slave-free. Literally, county after county had zero slaves because you can't own slaves in the mountains and make money, just like you can't own slaves in New England and make money. And so the conditions here were ripe high volume industrial level farming with sort of a feudal patriarchal lens and it's a pretty daggone good fit and 
So it is logical we're the number one slave trading city for America. And there's always going to be pushback on that. You know, I, I noticed it, and I've probably noticed it more now than before, because people are increasingly talking about these things. I think we swept it under the rug for a long time. I think people just maybe even you know, tried to try to pretend like it didn't happen. That's I've never had that approach. I love talking about slavery, and I find that my guests, particularly if I have black tourists, they want you talking about this stuff. They don't want you shying away from it. I, those are my favorite compliments when I have black tourists and afterwards they say, thank you so much for being frank. Thank you so much for not mincing words. It's refreshing because you don't learn if you don't discuss it. So I think one of the great joys for giving tours in Charleston is outside people do not understand the significance of Charleston because it collapsed in 1865. This was the fourth largest city in the United States in 1790. Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Charleston. South Carolina educated more children in Europe than the other 12 colonies put together. Nine of the 10 wealthiest families in America were living in South Carolina for a period of time prior to 1776. All at once, nine out of 10. And so the role of Charleston is not well understood. The American Revolution, I think, offers insight. This is the bloodiest theater of the revolution. There were more battles in South Carolina, more people were killed in South Carolina than any of the other 12 colonies. And that's just a huge surprise for guests. We had four signers of the Declaration of Independence from Charleston, four signers of the Constitution from Charleston, and that's not well understood. George Washington spent a week in Charleston in 1791, and he wrote that he had never been entertained more lavishly. He said the most elegant parties he had ever attended were in Charleston, and that the prettiest ladies he'd ever seen were in Charleston. And you're listening to Tommy Dew, and it's not a walking tour, but you're getting a great chronological tour, a great economic tour, and a great social tour of one of America's great cities. When we come back, more with Tommy Dew's walking tour of Charleston, South Carolina. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Tommy Dew's walking tour of Charleston, South Carolina, which has been praised and recommended by everyone from the Wall Street Journal to TripAdvisor. Let's return to Tommy with more of the story of his hometown. Another really big surprise for outsiders is the permissiveness of Charleston. We have so many social firsts, the first theater in America, first racetrack in America, first golf club in America widespread gambling, city-backed lotteries. The oldest profession was legal from the beginning through World War II. Our Navy base matriculated hundreds of thousands of soldiers post-World War II, and they were riddled with STDs. And so because of medical concerns, they had to write laws against it for the first time. That's in the 1940s. The French called us the Paris of the New World. The British called us the Crown Jewel of America. But at the same time, New Englanders called Charleston Sodom and Gomorrah. They saw Charleston as sinners on a biblical level, Sodom and Gomorrah. And what surprises people, the confusion comes from the fact that they're now inclined to call us the Bible Belt. But really, the North was the Bible Belt for the first 150 years. So the real question is what happens? Why did the North and the South swap personalities? And it's about immigration once again. We stopped getting people in the early 1800s when they start industrializing and building factories. Immigrants go north. They also invest in infrastructure, railroads, canals. And it's a magnet for immigration and the South is backwatered. So basically, from the 1820s to the 1970s, there's 150 years where the Southeast is not receiving people at the same rates as everybody else. And so Southern families grow deep roots and they tend to have a longer, more traditional view. 
And the North, which had been uptight, was overwhelmed by immigration 200 years ago and suddenly found herself to be multicultural, more liberal, more progressive. And the South was increasingly homogeneous, conservative, and moralistic. It impacts everything, you know, accents. You know, talked about that a little bit, but the Southeast coastal accent is Elizabethan English. So my accent, coming from Richmond, I've got a form of what is called the Tidewater accent. So around the Chesapeake Bay, that accent was established by people from Southern England in the early 1600s. It's called a non-rhotic accent. It's very soft, you drawl, you hold your vowel, and you pull the R out of the word. I throw a ball, I don't throw a ball. I go to the bathroom, not the bathroom. My grandfather loved to go down to the river, ate tomatoes and patatas. And that's Elizabethan English. English. It's linguistically closer to Elizabethan English than what is currently being spoken in England. And I know that's difficult to believe, but it is a linguistic fact. And if you go up into the mountains of the South, it becomes Scottish. The Scots are the next great migration, and they go up the rivers looking for available land, and the mountains catch them, and it suits them. There's an old saying in the South, the glen and glade of Appalachia settled by the Scot. And so instead of drawling and holding your vowel, you lilt. You get it up into the back of your mouth, more like that. It's a brogue, and so you have a Scottish brogue in the mountains of the south and an English drawl on the coast. And they're old because they were generally undisturbed. Another subtlety of, of the south and the lack of immigration is how we view ourselves. Southerners tend not to be ethnic people. We don't care about where we from, came from overseas. We care about being southern. So the joke is southerners are southern, Yanks are ethnic. Northern people are consistently more newly arrived people and they tend to get excited, romanticize where their grandparents were born. So Northern people tend to have these little flavors attached to them, Irish American, Italian American, Puerto Rican American, Chinese American. And Southerners tend not to see themselves that way. We've been here long enough to be from here. You definitely notice that if you ask a Northerner where they're from, it's usually where they woke up this morning. And if you ask a Southerner where they're from, it's where their people are. People always say, are you from Charleston? They'll say, no, I'm from Richmond. Well, you've lived here for 35 years. You're from Charleston. And I will say, no, I am not. I am from Richmond. My people are from Virginia. I live here, but I'm from there. And that's a subtlety. It's where your people are. That's where you're from. It's not where you live right now. I get so many tourists who will say, this is my favorite city. I love it so much. You're so fortunate to live here. There's a secret sauce. There is a feeling I get when I come to Charleston and I can't explain it. What is that? And I would say ultimately it is the defense of the human scale. So in the late 1800s, engineering really improved. They invented the I-beam and the elevator. And the first skyscraper comes to fruition in Chicago, 1880. This place was so screwed up, it was boarded up and bankrupt. There was no money to justify a big building, and that would not come until after World War II. And by the time there was some desire to go big, it was too late because preservation laws and zoning laws were well-crafted. Preservation says if a building is 75, you're not gonna tear it down, and you can't corrupt the facade. You can't do anything to the exterior of an older building that's gonna compromise its accuracy. And so to put a skyscraper in downtown Charleston, you'd have to tear down a block of old things and that directly violates preservation. 
and there's a, there is a four-story threshold through much of the city. And that's called the human scale. Until the I-beam and the elevator were invented, cities around the world built to four stories and stopped because the great materials of human history are wood, brick, and stone. Wood, brick, and stone have the same load potentials. They get you to four stories efficiently and then you gotta stop. You can actually add a fifth story, but it would double the cost of construction. You had to make the foundation so massive to carry that fifth layer. It just did not make sense. And so there's always been an economic efficiency of four stories or less around the world for thousands of years. And so cities around the world had very similar, very predictable densities. If you maintain a four-story threshold, your population will live, worship, work, go to school, socialize, shop within a one, two, three mile radius. The bulk of your existence will be in one place. You're not spread too thin. And as a citizen, you can pour yourself into that piece of turf. Big cities embraced the new technology, ripped out the human scale, and started going vertical. They created jobs, but they also created commuters. So now large cities suffer from millions of anonymous workers, people who often travel more than an hour to get to work. The commute was awful. It was busy. They had to be aggressive to be competitive. And unfortunately, they're anonymous and civility inherently breaks down in that situation. In a place like Charleston, you don't get to be anonymous. You see the same people day after day and you know them in various ways. You cannot walk the streets of Charleston without seeing people that you know. And so you'll have frequent and often deep engagements block to block. And that enhances civility. The reason that this has been voted the most mannered city in America is because the, the human scale provides accountability. You do not get to be anonymous. And so when you live in Charleston, you feel like you live in, the, in a village, yet we have the amenities and the cultural impact of a city that's millions and millions of people. I think one of the most interesting barometers of civility is how people use their car horn. People in Charleston refrain from using their horn. They'll give you a little toot to say hi, or they may honk the horn if there's an emergency, but they don't use the horn to express themselves block to block. I had a tourist from Philadelphia on my tour a few years ago, and the night before the tour, she had pulled into town and she was lost, and she was at a stoplight, five o'clock, rush hour traffic, couldn't find her hotel, she was buried in her map, and she spaced out. And when she looked up, the light was yellow and turned red. She sat at the front of the line through an entire green light. And she looked in the rear view mirror and there were a line of cars and not one car blew its horn. Every car behind her gave her the benefit of the doubt. And it blew her mind. She had an epiphany. She said, this is the way that life is supposed to be. And so I feel People come to Charleston from busy situations, from these large metros, long commutes, spread utterly too thin, and they come here and it's, it nurtures their soul. This is the way that life used to be and perhaps is supposed to be. And what a beautiful piece. A special thanks to Tommy Dew 
his walking tour of Charleston, South Carolina, captured by our own Philip Graham, who moved from San Diego to Charleston. And a special thanks to Greg Hengler for the production on the piece as well. And by the way, we learned so much historically about this city and culturally about this city. If you've not been, by all means, visit. But that, that idea of the defense of the human scale, and it's true, when you go there, you'll be struck most by the fact that there are just no tall buildings. And there's a lot of light because of that. And there's a lot of intimacy because of that. Tommy Dew's story here on Our American Story. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.